Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, thank you. We've thoroughly enjoyed ourselves here in Bangor. I can say that properly now. How about you? And really have felt very much your kindness and your welcome to myself and to my family. My wife and two daughters and a close friend of our daughters is, are here tonight. So thank you so much. Don't you love the ministry of AIM? You know, one of the tragedies in the church today is that people who are at that point when they have the most spiritual riches are in many cases squandering it and trying to get their golf score better. I'm not saying golf's a bad, well, golf's a horrible game, but um, I just keep losing the little white balls, so. But I mean, when you make that somehow the, the, the destiny the life goal after retirement. What an incredible waste for the kingdom of God. So uh, Walter and Rosie and the many more, God bless you. Do you think the rich young ruler, he was young, he was cocky, he was brash, he had lots of bling. But do you think on his deathbed, maybe he lived into his 80s, that he would gather his children and his grandchildren and maybe his great-grandchildren and say, kids, I need to tell you a great story. One day Jesus Christ of Nazareth offered to me to come and make a radical decision of discipleship and follow him. And I just want you to know I made the right choice. I don't think he said that. I think it haunted him to the end of his days. That today he heard the voice of God and he said no. In fact, the most bitter people I've ever met are people who heard God God distinctly call them to that prayer that Simon has told us about anytime, anywhere, and they found something else to do. I like the three questions that AIM has. It reminded me of, um, and forgive me for this, one of my favorite movies is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And there's a scene near the end of that where the Knights of the Round Table seeking the Holy Grail have to cross this fiery chasm. And guarding the bridge, this rickety bridge across this chasm is this bleary-eyed gap-tooth, wizened, grizzled old man who asks three questions before they can go across. If they get any one of the three questions wrong, they plunge immediately into the fiery chasm. And brave Sir Lancelot says, I'm not afraid, I will go. So he steps up and the old man goes, What is your name? 
I am Sir Lancelot of the Round Table. What is your quest? I seek the Holy Grail. What is your favorite color? And he says, uh, well, it's easy, it's blue. He says, all right, then go across. Uh, and the next guy comes up and he botches the favorite color question and on and on it goes. It's a silly movie, it's a silly scene. Those are great questions. Those are actually Jesus kind of questions. What is your name? I mean, who really are you? When we dig down deep, when we get down to the very core and heart of who you are in the dark when no one's looking. Not who you're trying to be, not the image you're trying to project, not who you wish you were. Who are you? Jesus is asking that. What is your quest? Are you fulfilling that? Are you living the life that Christ put you on this earth to live? Are you living that purpose or are you just... Spending time and making money. Maybe getting a better golf score. What is your quest? What is your favorite color? Do you know that God of the universe is interested in the intimate details of your life and actually cares about you? What lights you up? What makes you work? What gets your heart pumping? What's your favorite color? I want to take this to a story tonight. Uh, where in some ways, these are the questions God asks this man. The story of Gideon. Most of you know it well. I'm just going to read a portion of the opening part of that story. Judges chapter 6. I'm going to read the first six verses and then skip down to verse 11 and read a few more. Judges chapter 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, Mennonites, I mean, they're just, again, that, that's, that really plays well in North America, that joke, but... I, I tried it once before here, and it just doesn't go over. <laughs> Midianites, Amalekites, other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock on their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down at the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiazrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, Lord, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. What is your name? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all these, his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord's abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. 
Am I not sending you? What is your quest? Go. But the Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. That's how I understand him saying it anyhow. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. The story progresses on. I'll tell a little bit more of that. The famous story, what happens from here. You know that story, right? Gideon gets sent out against these ravagers, these war, war bands that come out, 135,000 strong, raping the land. And God says, I, I need you to recruit a whole bunch of people and we'll see what we can do. And I don't know if you know the numbers, but he recruits, I think it's 10,000 people against 135,000. A bunch of farmers against seasoned warriors. And God comes to him and says, Gideon, we got get a little problem here. And he says, yeah, God, I know. <laughs> no kidding. I, I know I, I, I did everything. I mean, we, we did announcements from the pulpit. We put it in the bulletin. I mean, we even did PowerPoint on this thing. And I mean, that's all. I mean, we just got 10,000. I'm sorry. Yeah, we got a problem here. We, we got too many. Yeah, and I, you, excuse me? <laughs> And you know how this goes. And we'll, you know, send all the cowards home. Anybody who's scared? I mean, 10,000 people, 100. Farmers with hoes against 135,000 people who like to fight. Are you scared? So Gideon gets up and says, anybody, you know, Shaking in their boots a little. Anybody kind of feeling a little nervous about this? You can go home. I mean, and the guys are going, like, you know, I mean, I'd like to fight, but I, I think I left the toaster um, on or, you know, I'm just, um, I, I, I got to do my hair tonight. And people, ball people are saying that. It's just on. <laughs> so off they skedaddle. And then God says, we got a problem here, Gideon. He's like, oh, I, I thought this might happen. Uh, still too many, and he has this weird thing, you know, have them drink water and from the stream, if they do it this way, kick them out. They do it that way, keep them. It's, uh, anyhow, we end up with 300 people, and then God says, now we've got a great plan, and nobody gets a weapon. You get little horns and little jars and little lamps, and, and away we go. And they defeat them. But before... Gideon gets to that point with a mere 300. There is a movie some years ago uh, go, go named 300 based on the somewhat a true story. The, this movie, I understand, isn't that historically accurate, but the true story of the Spartan warriors against the, um, the forces of Xerxes at the gates of Thermopylae. And 300 uh, took on this massive army and really defeated them at the cost of their own life. But the original 300 is a story in Judges. Going up against the gates of hell. And they can't win. The gates of hell have to give way. But what I want to share with you tonight is a few things that has to happen before he's ready to go and liberate an entire nation with just a few people. I think it was... 
uh, Simon, the other night, I think it was Wednesday night, you quoted that, um, was it Margaret Mead that you quoted? Or was that, yeah, Margaret Mead about, you know, that, and, and I, I know that quote uh, from Martin Luther, very similar. He says, the future does not belong to the complacent majority. It always belongs to committed minority. It just will take a few. It just took a few 1,500 years ago in Bangor here to go out from this place and be a light onto the entire continent of Europe. The Irish saved civilization. It just took a few. The future never belongs to a complacent majority, but always to a committed minority. I believe that that committed minority, that 300, is here. So God comes up to this man, and, um, and this is the God who, uh, my title is, Your God is Too Safe. It's the title of my first book. And uh, I've always been inspired by the C.S. Lewis story, and, and I know I've, I've learned in my time here that he came from Belfast, and, and a few people have offered to tour me around the sites, and I haven't been able to do that yet. But uh, there's a story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by Lewis where the Pavenchi children have come into Narnia and sort of realize they're talking animals and all the rest of it. And they meet with the Beaver family and very mild Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and they're telling them about Narnia and this, that, and the White Witch and how it's always winter, never Christmas. And then they tell the children that they're going to have to go meet Aslan, who's a lion. And the children get nervous. Their hearts thrill, and their hearts kind of clutch at the name of Aslan. And they're trying to get their heads around that they're going to go meet a gigantic king of the beasts, the lion, face to face. And I think it's Susan who, who says to Mr. Beaver, well, well a, a lion, um, um, he's safe, isn't he? And Mr. Beaver, so mild-mannered, suddenly erupts and he says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. Are you not listening to me? He's a lion. He's wild. Of course he's not safe. But he's good. How often the tenor of our prayers are for God to just keep us safe. God to just make it all work for us. I pray those prayers. I hear those prayers all the time. When is the church of Jesus Christ going to start to pray to the dangerous God, God, make us dangerous? Yes, keep us safe, but make us dangerous. I've been so ruined, actually, by your story, Simon, because I'm not living myself dangerously enough in trust, in faith, in the God who, of course, he's not safe, but he's good. In this world, this dying world, this broken world, this Midianite overrun world does not get right, turned right side up or get turned on its head 
by a, a group of complacent people who just want to keep God safe so that he can keep them safe. It's a God on mission who calls us. Would you live a little dangerously? I think of the story Erwin McManus tells. He's a pastor in Los Angeles. When his son was very little, his son was having nightmares. And uh, he ran into his son's room and his son just couldn't calm down. He was having nightmares that demons were around and all of that. And his son uh, said, Daddy, would you pray for me? And he said, oh, yes, son, I'll pray for you. And he said, yeah, Daddy, please pray that Jesus would keep me safe. And at that point, little boy is maybe six, seven years old. Erwin McManus has this biblical insight. And he says to his little son, I'm not going to pray that Jesus keeps you safe. I'm going to pray that he makes you dangerous. I think we need more of those prayers in our own hearts, in our own churches. God, make us dangerous. Every time we send young people in our church out on mission, and more and more, by the grace of God, we're seeing young people go out into the mission field. That's our prayer for them. God, keep them safe. Make them dangerous. Because you're a God who takes risks. You, you, your whole MO, your whole modus operandi is a risk-taking God. And you're calling people. What is your name? What is your quest? What is your favorite color? What are you willing anytime, anywhere to lay it down for the sake of the mission of God? A dangerous God. He's calling people. Will you not play it safe? Will you follow me? So... Gideon comes and God's, he's playing it safe. I mean, you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. You thresh wheat where the wind can get at it. This is like Spanish dancing in a broom closet. I mean, it's, it's just the wrong context. And he's playing it safe. And God comes to him and names him with the name that he has to grow into. But that's the nature of God. He always sees what we will be and calls us to rise up to it. I love the story of John Sergiev, the great father in, um, I think it was St. Petersburg at the turn of the century during the decay of Russia. While there was crime and and, and danger in the streets everywhere. And most of the priests, the Orthodox priests in Russia, use their priestly position to just protect themselves and hide away and, and, and feed themselves while everybody else was, was starving. Except for Father John Sergeyev. He would go out into the streets every day and he'd go among the people who were the most broken, the most desperate, the most fallen down. And he would come to them and he would find them lying in the gutter and he would lift their faces in his hands, his big hands, and he would hold their face up to his face and he would say this to them, this is beneath your dignity. You were created to house the glory of the living God. And everywhere Father John Sergiev went, revival broke out. You see, we got a God who comes to us, comes to us in our wine presses, comes to us hiding out away from the, the, the problems of the world and bemoaning them, complaining about them like he is. And God says to us, this is beneath your dignity. 
You're created to house the glory of the living God. Will you get mighty warrior? Will you become what you are? And there's three things that are standing in the way of Gideon doing that. The first is disappointment with God. God, what happened here? Where, where are you? Where are the wonders that you used to do that our fathers told us about? Where are the wonders that um, Bangor is renowned for? What, what? He's disappointed with God. Things haven't worked out the way he thought they should if God is sovereign. Do you have any disappointments with God? Is part of, if you are holding back, if, you, if you're not giving yourself fully to the cause of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Christ, is part of it that you just feel disappointed with God? God, I had somebody I really loved and I prayed for them and they didn't, they didn't make it. I, I got stuck in this job that I can't stand. In this marriage, it's very difficult. I've been plagued with these health issues. He's disappointed with God, and, and what God says to him is he says, you know, the wonders and glories of the past that our fathers told us about, where are they today? And Gideon hears this from God. Gideon, you go. You go. I need you to step into that place of risk. I need you to step into that place of faith. If you actually want to see me move in the ways of old. The kingdom of God is not one of those things that comes about by uh, here it is and there it is. It is within you. I need you to step into this right now. The second thing standing in the way of Gideon's call, his identity living this quest of God, crossing over the chasm into this new place that God wants to bring him. The second thing is a sense of inadequacy. We heard a little bit about that with the AIMI, that who am I? What, what have I got to offer? I'm a runt, he says. I'm, I'm the least. I, I'm from the smallest clan. I'm the least among my clan. Who am I that I... Th- that, that, that God could use me. I, Michael Jordan, you've, you've heard of Michael Jordan, right? He's a great basketball, do you, you know basketball? You know what that game is? Okay. Anyhow, Michael Jordan was probably the greatest basketball player. We're not even big about it in Canada, but the States, they love that game. And, uh, they pay enormous sums of money to these people to, to sort of dribble a ball around a court. It's, it's um, ridiculous. But anyhow, Michael Jordan uh, was and still rumored to, you know, seen as the greatest basketball player that ever lived. Um, early in his career, he chalked up in a single game his greatest single points in an evening record. 69 points in one game. Now that particular game, I I forget, I think it was a a team in Florida that they're playing against, the Chicago Bulls he played for. 
I think it was a team in Florida, and they were just mopping up the floor, mostly Michael, 69 points. I mean, he's just crushing the other team. Late in the game, last three minutes, I think it was, there was a backbencher who had never been out on the court before. He was a guy they hired. He's pretty good from college, but he wasn't really up to end by any standards. They gave him a contract, but he just basically warmed the bench. And uh, just as this game is finishing up and it's clear that there's no way Chicago is going to lose it, the coach decides to loose the backbencher for a few minutes. Just let him get out in the court. So the guy's he's, he's wild. He's, he's so thrilled. And he gets out and he starts running around and he's so pumped he actually scores two points before the game ends. About a year later, the team, the Bulls, retire this backbencher and a local journalist, a, a journalist from the local newspaper where the guy retires to, catches up with him and interviews him about his few years in the National Basketball Association, NBA. And he asks this, I don't even know his name, he asks this backbencher, what was your greatest moment in the NBA? Now, this is the game you get to play. Michael Jordan has scored 69 points. He scores two. What was your greatest moment in the NBA? And he answers this, the night Michael Jordan and I together scored 71 points. (laughs) I can tell you this for sure, that the greatest moments in your life are going to be the times when you know as you know as you know that apart from Jesus Christ, you were nothing. But because of him, you could do all things. And so he says, I'm nobody, God. I'm I'm inadequate. I'm I'm a loser. And God says, I am with you. (laughs) We're going to do this together. I know you've got about two points in you. But get out in the court and watch how many I'm going to get. And we'll all get... We'll all do it together. The greatest moments in your life, it's not about you. It's not about your giftedness. It's about your willingness. It's about, as I think you said again, Simon, not about your ability, but availability. There's one other thing that's holding him back. He's disappointed in God, and God says, well, why don't you try me? Why don't you step out right now and see where the thing goes? He feels inadequate and God says, I'm with you. It's always a majority when I'm with you. But there's one other thing. There's a whole bunch of idols in Gideon's backyard. That's a part of the story I didn't read, but it's the rest of chapter 6 where it turns out the epicenter of idolatry in Israel at that moment is Gideon's own house and household. His father is a high priest of Baal, the fertility god or the sex god that has, the Israelites have compromised this covenantal faith they have with Yahweh, with the God of the universe, the sovereign God, and they've They've made a very bad compromise and they've given their hearts over to Baal. Now here's the interesting thing is the nations that are oppressing Israel are all Baal worshipers. Midianites, Amalekites, etc. And Baal's a fertility god. A fertility god 
if you keep him happy, the idea is, if, if you worship Baal, if you give offerings to Baal, he will keep you well looked after. He'll make sure the corn grows and the barley and the wheat and all of that. For seven years, Israel has not reaped what they've sown. For seven years, they've worked their, their tails off and they have nothing to show for it. They have little scraps that they can glean from their own fields after they've been ravaged by the Midianites and they have to go thresh it in wine presses. In other words, Baal clearly is a false god. Baal is falling down on the job. Seven years of this and nobody said, huh, Baal doesn't work. We're living hand to mouth here. And we're Baal worshippers, and he's supposed to supply us, and he's not doing it. Nobody's waking up. The, the Amalekites and Midianites are having to raid other people's fields, the field themselves. They haven't woken up to it yet. And this is what God says to Gideon about the idolatry problem. To the problem of his disappointment with God, he says, I'm sending you, let's go, let's step into this, let's just, you watch now what I'm going to do. To the, to the sense of adequacy, God says, I'm with you. But to the problem of idolatry, this is what God says, go deal with it tonight. Tonight. Take this thing down. Wreck it, burn it, put a real altar, start really worshiping me, but get rid of this thing now. Is it idolatry that holds you back? Is something got a grip on your heart that is distracting you from the real call and destiny of God? Is it this career path, the money? Is it something sexual? Baal was a sex god, a fertility god, but a sex god. I, I know in North America, internet pornography is such an enormous problem. And uh, we've been sort of pushing beyond the surface to try to find out. And we found in North American churches that men have been taken out from actually working in the kingdom of God because the, this, this grip that pornography has on their lives is so deep and there's so much shame and there's so much distraction and there's so much corruption that they actually can't take hold of the things that Christ has taken hold of them for. And, and, and we're finding it's a growing problem with women as well. I know some of you are bowing to the knee to this thing. And God's saying it's time to stop it. It's time to stop it. This idol in your life, I, I, I see you as a mighty warrior. I see you as someone I could use. I, I know you feel inadequate, but just get out in the court with me and see what we can do together. I know you've been disappointed in me, but just step out and see what will happen. But there's something I'm asking you to deal with, and I want you to go deal with it now. Get rid of that idol. Because it's really hard for me to totally get your attention when that's got hold of you.
And he goes and does it. He takes 10 of his servants, 10 of his buddies. He's scared. And once that is done, this is the series of events that begin to happen in his life. I'm I'm almost done here, and then I'm going to actually ask you to respond. The first thing that happens is that by willing to say yes to God in all three of these things, that God is enough, God is with him, God has sent him, and he says yes to God, I will destroy the idols. The whole town is mad at him. But, but what we find is, first of all, Gideon frees himself. Gideon now is in a place before God where he can stand in true worship of the holy God and he can truly become who he is meant to be from the beginning, mighty warrior. He gets free. We find out that, that he, he gathers some people around these ten bodies and they get free. We find out an amazing thing that Gideon's father, who is presiding over the cult, he's high priest of Baal, gets free. If I had time, I'd read the story, but when, when the townspeople come and they're really mad at, at Gideon for wrecking Baal's cult and altar, and they come and they say, bring him out, we want to kill him. Guess who steps forward? Joash, Gideon's father, the high priest of the whole thing. And he says, do you really think Baal's a god? Because if he is, he can defend himself. I think that his father knew from way back the thing was all a bunk. But he didn't have the courage. And here's a beautiful thing. Gideon didn't say, I'm this because my father was. Gideon heard God. Don't blame your mom. Don't blame your dad. Don't blame your grandfather or your grandmother for what you are and what you do. Here's the reality. If you hear God and you step into the reality and the destiny and the call God has on you, then you can actually set even your mom and dad free. And then after all those freedoms, we know the great story of the 300. That Gideon's in a place before God and a will and a submission to God and an empowering in God that the whole nation, with just a committed minority, including the, the people who too, were too scared and went home, they all get to go free too. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Is the gap between the things God wants to do and what really is going on right now is a gap between what God wants to do in Bangor, in Burundi, Vancouver Island, Belfast, Bangkok. Is a gap between what God wants to do and the current prevailing conditions. Is the gap you? Is a difference you? Is what God needs in order to accomplish his, his divine, sovereign purposes for Cuba. You. I mean, many will come along. It's, it's not about any of us being heroes, but is, is God looking for just one willing, faithful, obedient man or woman? And the difference between what is and what could be is you. In our church recently, about a year ago, we sent out a couple, Dwayne and Karen Guthrie. 
to Bolivia. And Dwayne is an incredibly shrewd, savvy businessman who was dying. He's an incredibly salesman, but he was dying just selling bigger and bigger screen TVs to people. And, and he, his life was becoming so meaningless that he got into the grip of a pornographic addiction that he, he told me that it, at its height, he would spend four to five hours a day viewing this junk. Beautiful wife, but he didn't see her, couldn't be intimate with her. And it finally reached a point where he went and he had an affair. I remember the day that all came out. And God took the wreck of this man's life. And God began to name him anew. And call him beyond the mistakes he had made and the wrong turns he had taken. In 2007, Dwayne and Kieran came to Africa with my wife and I and a small team of people. And God said to him, I'm calling you into missions. And last year, we stood up in April in our church and we prayed fervently, commissioned them, and then we took them down. We surprised them all by getting up at three in the morning and meeting them at the airport. And I think he's going to turn the world on his head. I think that some things that God wants to do in Bolivia, the difference between what is and what could be, is Dwayne Guthrie. That he failed miserably, but God wasn't done with him yet. God's not done with you yet. And some of you here are ready to pray that prayer. Some of, many of you have. That's why you're here. Anytime, anywhere. But some of you tonight, the Lord has been speaking, and it's, it's tonight. It's now. And it doesn't matter how disappointed you've been in God before, because he's saying, let's go. It doesn't matter how inadequate you feel and small and insignificant. He says, I'm going on the court with you. <laughs> and let's see how many points we can get together. And even if there's an idol in your life that seems too big for you, even that, God says, go and you will find my grace and my strength. In the movie, and this is my last thing, and then I'm going to ask you to respond. The Lord of the Rings. There's a scene in the third movie where the, the armies of Middle-earth go up against the gates of Mordor, the gates of hell, this epicenter of evil in the land. And there's just a few. They're whittled down to, I think, 1,500 warriors against massive hordes 
coming out of Mordor. And there's a big conversation going on that this is a crazy, crazy, dangerous mission. That there's no way they can win it. And it's going back and forth. Should they do this? Should they not? And finally, Gimli, the little dwarf, speaks up. And he's a feisty guy like him. His God's not too safe. And he says this. Well, we're vastly outnumbered. There's zero chance of success. There's certainty of death. Well, what are we waiting for? Jesus Christ said this. We're not vastly outnumbered, but he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. And it's not zero chance of success. He says, well, the name of Simon's book, in Jesus Christ we're more than conquerors. And there's no certainty of death. Christ himself said these words. Even if you die, yet shall you live. Well, what are you waiting for? What I'm going to ask you to do right now is if you can, with integrity, don't do this because your neighbor did it or you feel guilty or you don't want to feel singled out, but with integrity in your heart, can say the prayer that Simon has been talking to us about since Wednesday night, anytime, anywhere, God. I'm yours, anytime, anywhere. If you can say that with integrity, I just ask you to stand and I will pray for, with, for you and, and then we'll end Worldwide 2010 and believe that God's going to do great things through the mighty warriors here. So tonight... If you can stand, if the band comes up, they're going to do a closing hymn. Is that right? So just start to come up. But if you can, if you can stand with integrity, anytime, anywhere, God, do it now. It's a committed minority right here. Anytime, anywhere, God. Might be right here, might be Burundi. Father God, I pray right now. Behold your mighty warriors. Behold those who have stopped saying no, stopped saying not now, stopped saying I'm not enough, stopped saying you're not enough. Stop saying, maybe some other time, maybe later, maybe when I'm older. Father, I, I pray right now for your mighty warriors. Behold them. And I ask you this, that the commitment that they're making here publicly, Father, do not put one of them to shame. Would you so empower them? Would you so raise them up to courageously do, live out, Whenever it comes, however it comes, the call of God in their life. Even if, Father, what you come and say is, I, I want you to remain right here and serve in your neighborhood for the rest of your life. That wouldn't be a disappointment. 
If you come next week, next year, 10 years and say, I'm, I'm calling up the promise right now. I'm calling up the commitment right now. They, they wouldn't have become distracted, but they'd be ready anytime, anywhere. And Father God, I look forward to hearing because I believe in your providence. You will let me know and let many of us know the things you did this night and through this week through speaking to men and women about your heart and passion, saying, what is your name? I'm going to give you a new one. What is your quest? It's not big enough. I want you to do my thing. What is your favorite color? I'm actually going to make this work for you and fit for you. I'm not going to distort you and make you somebody you're not. I'm going to use you. And so, Father God, I pray blessing. I pray anointing. And I pray this, keep them safe, make them dangerous. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.